The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center, Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the monthly Guest Dharma series. Everyone, thanks for coming. Thanks for being here tonight. And thank you so much, Rita, for joining us again. I think Rita's been here more than three times. I mean, you taught that course, and I think maybe four public talks over the years. Um, if you don't know, Rita lives in Eau Claire, but she's a well-known Buddhist teacher and Buddhist academic uh, in the West, not just in the United States, but also travels internationally and is a senior teacher in the Shambhala Buddhist tradition, which is in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, and currently studies with, is it Jetsu? Jetsun Khandra Rinpoche. Rinpoche. And she, it's a she, is that true? It's a she. Yeah. And out in the, mostly on the East Coast, where she resides when she's not traveling? She resides in India. Uh-huh. She's a nunnery in India, and her main center in, is in Virginia, but she travels the United States quite a bit. So we've been fortunate, and, and Rita also teaches at some of the other local centers and a few places in Wisconsin besides traveling around different centers in this country. Um, and she has several books, one coming out, A Garland of, if I can get this right, A Garland of Feminine Re- Reflections, and it's a collection of 30 years of writings that Rita's put together, and with a new introduction and a few new chapters. And I guess that's coming out early in 2009, so we can look forward to that. And thank you so much. Tonight, Rita's talk is how clinging to gender, I forgot the clinging part when we were talking <laughs> earlier, how gender subverts enlightenment. Rita, correct me. How clinging to gender subverts <laughs> enlightenment, which is a little bit more hopeful. <laughs> well, thank you. And with such a heavy topic, it's good we have a last line to start it with. (laughs) But um, hello, good evening, everyone. Thanks for coming out. It seems like you always have me the Saturday before a holiday. Yeah, we'll we'll get it right. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, this is at least, I know, at least the second time it was, I think last time it was right before Easter, which probably is less important to Buddhists than Mother's Day. <laughs> but I'm not sure my talk tonight is uh, has much to do with Mother's Day, or Father's Day for that matter, as I think you'll see based on what I want to say. Um, I must say when I saw the, uh, I haven't, I've given hundreds of talks on Buddhism and gender, but I haven't quite done this one before, it's a new set of notes, and a new title. And when I saw the title on the website, I thought, oh, did I think that up? <laughs> exactly. Did I think the title up or did you think? I think you did. Good. Because <laughs> that's exactly what I want to say, how clinging to gender subverts enlightenment. Um, and I suppose if you wanted to use gender as an adjective, you could say gender norms, gender stereotypes, gender roles. But I wanted to just leave it, um, how clinging to gender subverts enlightenment. And obviously, as you can see from how funny the title turns out, if we leave that word clinging out of it, um, every word in the title is important. Uh, Obviously, this is part of my ongoing work on Buddhism and gender, and that's a topic I've been working on more than 30 years now, um, as long as I've been involved in Buddhism. I think most most of you know that my involvement with uh, 
feminist issues predates my involvement with Buddhism. <coughs> but I actually, for many, many years, I prefer to say that I talk about uh, Buddhism and gender, uh, not Buddhism and feminism. I uh, don't use the word feminist very much anymore, though it is, it's feminist reflection. Oh, <laughs> Another. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's <laughs> Another. <laughs> Another word that's important. Um, and I'd like to make it clear that I consider that I'm working on Buddhism and gender, not Buddhism and feminism, to get rid of any lingering suspicions that somehow or another the work I'm doing is more pertinent to women than it is to men, or more about women than it is about men. I like to say that gender is a human phenomenon. Everyone is gendered. Uh, the problem has been that um, under many conventional ways of thinking, the word <coughs> gender and women gets collapsed and men just say, oh, gender, well, I'm a normal human being, so you're not talking about me. That's somebody else you're talking about. But gender is one of those words that applies to everyone, and I really uh, mean when, what I say when I say clinging to gender. That's what I want to explore, how clinging to gender norms harms humans, both women and men. Um, my longstanding definition of feminism, if we need a definition of feminism, is freedom from the prison of gender roles. And let's just let it go at that. Freedom from the prison of gender roles. Uh, long ago, many, many, I can't even remember when, but many, many years ago, in terms of thinking about gender, I decided it was futile to try to define a better set of gender arrangements. You know, patriarchy is a problem, so we need something that's, quote, a better set of gender arrangements, a better set of gender roles, a better set of gender norms, which is what a lot of feminists, um, I think people who call themselves feminists in many ways are still looking for that, that that's what, what, what would be the ideal set of arrangements between men and women so that it would be fair for everyone. And I, many, many years ago, I, I stopped and thought, no, that's stupid. Because no matter how you define gender roles, there will always be people who don't fit them very well. No matter what you say would be a good way for men and women to relate to one another, as soon as you take that label and slap it on top of a human being, then you're saying, you have to conform to this norm. We've set up this norm. Now it's up to you to fit in. Which is, you know, that's what was done under patriarchy. There was a set of norms. This is what it means to be a man. This is what it means to be a woman. Now you just fit. You fit in. It's up to you to fit. And this, this notion that it's up to me, you, to fit into some norm is what I'm saying. It doesn't work. You can't find a set of norms that will work well for everyone. And what, I wanted to almost say a swear word, what do we need them for anyway? <laughs> what do we need these norms for anyway? Why do we think we have to be so certain and clear that this person is this label and this person is this label and so we know what to expect of this person, we know what to expect of this person, and don't you dare confuse me or look confusing. So um, I've also commented on many occasions that 
you know, one of the first things we label about a person when we see a person is man, woman, right? It's one, it's one of the fir very first things we label. Um, and yet, what kind of information does that really communicate about that person? Does it really communicate a lot of accurate information about that person? I've sometimes said that regarding me, people often can't even, from looking at me and putting the label woman on me, they can't even get my sexual orientation right because it gets guessed wrong about as often as it get, gets guessed right. So what kind of, what other information is actually being communicated about me by slapping the label woman on me? What is it good for? Um, in terms of just ordinary social interactions, what is it good for? In terms of Dharma, is there is there any any point whatsoever in being so quick to slap the well slapping the labels on is not so much of a problem. We do that almost instinctively. It's then regarding the labels as anything uh, having any reality. You know, we conventionally put labels on things. That's that's not exactly a problem as long as we have done the analysis often enough to know that those labels have no reality behind them, that they're just um, our temporary constellations of dharmas, things that we conventionally agree upon as a token, I'll name it this, I'll name it that, so we can talk, but we know that we're talking about impermanent, illusory phenomena that do not ultimately exist in the sense of what it means to exist in, in Buddha Dharma. So um, instead of looking for better or fairer uh, gender roles, why not just give up the whole enterprise altogether and um, stop assuming that because someone has male anatomy or female anatomy, there's much of anything else that we can expect about them, much of anything else that they're predestined to be like or to want to do. Uh, that with Buddhist terms we would say we cannot find any underlying essence just because we can put a label on people. We can't find anything that is an essence that truly, that would mean that every individual upon whom we can give, put that label would have to share that trait. That's what it would mean, that there would be some essence of uh, being a woman or some essence of being a man. Um, people have a lot of clinging to that idea that there's something essential that is communicated by the labels man or woman. But when you start looking for it, you can't find it. Um, there's a very famous Buddhist story that I'll tell later on about how you really, you know, you think there's something there, but you really can't find it. When you start examining it, it turns out there's nothing there that applies to every person to whom we give the label. Um, so I want to define gender next. Um, I've defined gender here as the practice of making biological sex into something definitive and determinative. That's what we do with gender, isn't it? We make biological sex into something definitive and determinative. Uh, it is a practice of thinking that biological sex matters more than anything else about a person and that it matters 
to fix the gender norms and then limit people to fit into those gender norms. Um, and when I'm proposing that what we really need to do both if we want to talk about just living apart from being a Buddhist and even more importantly in terms of being a Buddhist, uh, actually the idea that we, we should just stop looking for, that we should seek freedom from the prison of gender roles is a fairly radical idea. Um, that's probably why not so many people advocate freedom from the prison of gender roles instead of finding a better set of gender roles. Um, I've studied, um, I've done a lot of cross-cultural study, as I think most of you know. And uh, all societies have doled out privileges and obligations on the basis of sex. It's just, you know, it's just always been done. And have also claimed that this differentiation is part of nature, not culture. And that's where things get dicey. When you, when you dole out a set of roles, a set of privileges and obligations, and then say, and that's part of nature. It, it can't be changed. It always was. It always will be. It is the case for every single individual. It's like gravity. This is what men do. This is what women do. And that's just like gravity. You can't do anything about it. Objects fall unless you're way out in space. Men do this. Women do that. An awful lot of people feel that their gender norms are natural that they're given and determinative, not that they are part of culture. Nevertheless, when we start looking at gender norms, gender roles, gender stereotypes, cross-culturally, there are very few universals about gender roles. Um, if there is a very common generalization cross-culturally about gender roles, Whatever is defined as the male role has had more prestige. And that's, of course, what feminists have argued against most, is the sense of automatic prestige and privilege that goes with the male role. Having been socialized in the 50s, um, this may be an age thing, but having been socialized in the 50s, I was very, very keenly aware of gender roles and the limitations of the gender roles I was being socialized into. And I absolutely hated being a girl because all it meant was that I wasn't going to get to do any of the things I thought were fun and interesting. And, you know, that's not a, that's a pretty, pretty heavy load to grow up with. Now, many societies have recognized that there's something inherently unfair about ascribing roles on the basis of biology and then making one side of the dichotomy more prestigious, more worthy than the other side of the dichotomy. So in many situations, some women are allowed to take on the male gender role. And you know, some of the problems with the way feminism has turned out in our day and age is that that's what happened. Women have taken on what has been culturally defined as the male role previously. Men have not taken on. Women are relatively free of the prison of gender roles these days. I don't think men are. Men still don't don't like to be labeled feminine. Don't take on 
the tasks that have been labeled feminine very easily. But most societies have allowed some women to take on the male gender role. Um, an example that's very culturally foreign, which I've studied some, not a lot, but I think it shows very, very clearly what it means to allow women to take on the male gender role. There are some African societies in which women marry, women become husbands to other women. This has nothing to do with sexual orientation. These people are not sexual partners. But the role of being a husband and father is much, much more prestigious than the role of being a wife and a mother. Therefore, women who can make the grade um, obtain wives. And they become fathers to the children that these women have. They're socially defined as the children's father, even though they're a woman. They're allowed to take on the male gender role. Now, when I don't want to go into this a lot tonight, but when we look at Buddhist history and Buddhist monasticism, some people would say fundamentally what Buddhist monasticism has involved is letting some women take on a male gender role. And um, there are contemporary anthropological studies that have been done in certain parts of the Buddhist world that indicate that that's how many people think about nuns <coughs> and um, that they, they resent women for becoming nuns because because they're not because they uh, don't do the work that women should do they take on a male role instead well that's the end of the social science part of this talk um, that comparative <coughs> background never never fully leaves my work as a Dharma teacher and I think it really is important to pay some attention to um, anthropology and history. It keeps us from assuming that the immediate situation is universally the way things are. Uh, for Buddhists, uh, certainly if we know anything about Buddhist history and Buddhist social institutions worldwide, we know that there has been a lot of gender discrimination in Buddhism. That's not even up for debate. Um, there's a lot of gender discrimination. And by discrimination here, I mean mainly that the label women has been applied and then the roles that go with it, the label men has been applied and there are roles that go with it. And um, perhaps the most, I think we talked about this in another talk I gave here some years ago, perhaps the most graphic illustration of the extent of gender roles in traditional Buddhism is the belief that to be reborn with a female body is um, unfortunate karma, period. And that therefore there are Buddhist practices that women can do to assure male rebirth in a future life. And that is considered traditionally to even everything out. It's not unfair. Um, this goes back actually a very long time. The first time I ever gave a talk on Buddhism and gender was in 1980 at a Buddhist Christian conference in Hawaii. And there were some Japan male Japanese Buddhists there. You'll see why I'm saying the word male in a minute. Um, who didn't talk to me 
but they did talk to my male American colleagues who then talked to me, and they said what these Japanese Buddhists were saying is, that crazy American woman, what's her problem? Buddhists have solved all these issues long ago. And we know that perhaps in Christianity, women would have a gripe. After all, all the priests are men. Jesus is a man. God is always talked about as male. But for Buddhists, we solved that problem long ago. Deserving women are reborn as men. <laughs> and, you know, it, it was... So that's, uh, if we need any indication whatsoever that discrimin gender discrimination has been alive and well in Buddhism, and I assure you that there are parts of the Buddhist world where these opinions are still held and where people are still doing practices to, uh, to get a male rebirth in the next life. Is that kind of gender discrimination a social problem or a dharma problem? I'm asking you. I'm going to have a few points in this talk where I stop and turn the question that way. It's both. Can you could you speak up so everybody can hear you? Again, it's both a social and a dharma problem. Yeah, that's my belief. I think that attitudes you know affect how we interact with others in terms of the social construct. But I also think that. Anytime you're clinging to something, um, you're maintaining an illusory, illusory image, then it's problematic. I mean, you have to move yourself or you're denying yourself to freedom. So, uh, for the reason I'm asking this question, social problem or dharma problem, um, is that some Buddhists would claim that solving social problems is optional or impossible. Therefore, as we know, engaged Buddhism is a somewhat controversial movement within Buddhism. Um, so some people don't even acknowledge it to be a social problem, let alone a Dharma problem. To claim that clinging to gender subverts enlightenment um, there are some Mahayana texts. There are texts that make that claim explicitly, but it has not been a, a popular thread throughout Buddhist history. So uh, let's just explore a little bit. Is gender discrimination in Buddhism, maybe we don't even want to say it's a problem. If we say it's a problem, is it a social problem, a dharma problem, or both? You said both. I would tend to say the same thing. Uh, could we be a little more explicit about the social dimensions of the problem, the dharma dimensions of the problem? Well, I, I would offer an opinion that it's, it's almost entirely a social problem because it's how humans have taught themselves to interpret reality. And if the dharma is true reality, then we're so it's a social problem because society teaches people this way, brainwashes people this way. Well, I don't know that I go quite that far, but it is something, it's a collective, um, collective, what is the totally the collective hunch? Or, a collective? A collective hunch, or it's a collective dream. Collective dream. the way it is. 
collective dream. I like that. It's a collective dream. Of course, the brainwashing is a very strong term, but how, why else would we believe in a collective dream? Well, I just don't know that. I feel internally that it's malicious. Mm-hmm. When I think of brainwashing, I think of someone who really choosing to do this, and I just don't harbor that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Can everybody hear her, by the way? Okay. I mean, I'm the one that's hard of hearing. <laughs> um, that's an interesting, that's a very interesting twist on the question that it might be a collective what did you call it? A collective dream, right? Yeah. But it's no, there's nothing malicious about it. Then why do we, then why do we, um, you know, work so hard to um, keep it going? Habit, habit energy is really strong. Habits are very strong. That's a very Buddhist thing to say. <laughs> very true. Habits are very strong. <laughs> I have experience. <laughs> yeah, that, that's a good wrinkle on it. So it's mainly a social problem because we collectively choose to keep the dream going. I don't know. I haven't thought about it as long as you have. So that's the best I could come up with. Well, I'm just, I, I don't, you know, I, I'm trying to, I don't know. I have my opinions, but I think it's good to do this kind of exploring around the room. Anybody else? Social problem, Dharma problem? Yes. Well, I'm just thinking about it, uh, whether it's the drive to keep it as a, <coughs> as a belief system, you know, is, comes from uh, sexuality, uh, the desire to keep I'm very good at being with him, but something about, you know, well, the sexual drive being behind it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think um, at the end of the talk, I want to go into, you know, what are some of the non-malicious reasons that this, we've gotten into this, I think, very, a serious collective dream that we have a very hard time waking up out of. Now that notion that we're collectively dreaming is a very deep analogy in Buddhism. It just hasn't usually been applied to gender in traditional Buddhism. Buddhists have always agreed that uh, most of what we take to be reality is a waking dream. It's not the way things really are. It's just that it is very rare in classical Buddhist texts say, you know, and a big part of that collective dream is our notions of gender norms, gender roles, that it means this to be a woman and that to be a man. Um, anybody else want to weigh in on social and dharmic problem? Yes. Um, it's just cooking, so I'm finished thought. Um, to me, it's Definitely a Dhamma problem. Definitely, I have no doubt in my mind because if the practice is really about understanding that the nature of the thought and the construct, uh, gender is a construct, and to not question that, it's, we have to deal with it. 
Um, sure, well put, actually. I'm going in that direction myself. Okay. Uh, but as a social, social problem, you know, if, if you ask men, <laughs> the man may say, it's like the, the, the Japanese monk said, it's not a problem. Um, and in this, within the same culture, um, the woman may also say, no, it's not a problem. And so I, I can see it in, in the many societies and subcultures where the kind of um, division of labor and gender-defined roles um, bring order and harmony to the system, and there, there could be many benefits uh -huh. to, to gender roles. Because just throwing out all the gender roles also bring tons of problems too. <laughs> There's a confusion. We always, you know, we have to spend a long time kind of getting to know your true nature and how do you, you know, like like in, in we just spent three weeks in Japan and coming back. It it was fairly gender defined society, but um, there's a lot less sense of facility and feeling of problem about um, being a gender society. I think these people can learn to accept it, and if, especially if there's a kind of a mutual benevolence and appreciation of the different roles that they play. It doesn't have to be a problem. But I think where they interact is, you know, historical Buddha was also part of the social setting and so uh, we we have inherited that <laughs> as well and so that's where we if we keep on going i think ultimately i think it it is also a social problem too well i think the social problem comes in and what i said earlier that no matter how you define those roles they don't fit People, you know, we end up with norms that people don't fit into, and then people feel badly about themselves. Even people who sort of fit more or less, they're always measuring themselves against the norm and not quite meeting it. Um, and we know that in terms of physical appearance may be one of the most obvious places where we are always measuring ourselves against the norm and never quite fitting it. But, um, you know, in cultures where gender is very precisely defined, men often have a lot of anxiety about whether they're really masculine enough. Um, and, you know, that's one of the reasons why, in some cases, women are kept under such strict control. A couple more. There was somebody here and then at the back of the room. Yeah. Um, I, I also tend to see that. Um, I just feel like it... The whole illusion is that we're, we're is that we're separate. Mm -hmm. um, that anything that gets in the way of, of anything that reinforces that illusion, you know. And I think that I mean, gender is just one. I mean, you know, you've got class, you've got race, you've got language, you've got nationality. There's all these different ways that you can cut it, you know. And I think ways that we can separate. Mm -hmm. And just and focus on and focus on the separation mm -hmm. and put and just put a lot of energy into that definition, the identity project. You know, putting 
putting energy into their ego, basically. Yeah. And then there's going to be people who want to have more or lots of that yes. um, socially. But if the ultimate marker of benefit is like feeling whole, then everybody's going to suffer. And Buddhists have said that, you know, for a long time, that everybody suffers when we um, when we don't understand when we focus too much on um, separation or separateness. I mean, I think that's called ego. Um, yeah. Well, I had a lot of stirring. And, um, That's good. Yeah. And, um, and I, um, I appreciate Buddhism, but I wouldn't really call myself a Buddhist, so I'm a little bit looking over here, but I really appreciate what I come here and you see. I'm glad this last time spoke about suffering. Um, I think that in this country, um, Buddhists of the West are part of the privileged, so much the privileged view, that this idea of gender is less um, perhaps pronounced, or we have more choices. Um, and so I'm thinking about definitely um, both, um, to your question, I would say definitely both. But socially constructed. I mean, when women continue to be, I think women's practice, many times spiritual practice, has to do with, um, you know, they're doing more of the work. They're caring for the children more. They're, uh, so their practice, um, I think, from most common folks, men and women, is very different. And so, um, I don't know, there's just so much stirring right mm-hmm. now that I just feel like it's mm-hmm. still kind of a privileged conversation. You know? Well, it's a, a, a privilege is a, I don't know if I could use that word, though, in terms of economics, what Western Buddhists are usually privileged economically. That uh, doesn't mean in terms of psychological suffering. There's a lot of psychological suffering among Western Buddhists. In fact, that's often the route into Buddhist practice. But um, the the other thing I'm reacting to is that when we have a conversation among a small group of people, it's always going to be privileged in some way or another because it's a small group of people who are having the conversation. Um, Maybe one more comment on social and dharma problems, social and dharma issues. Okay, maybe it'll come up as we go along. Um, what I'm, what I'm, been thinking about. I've watched my work and my emphases somewhat shift over maybe the last ten years, working on, on gender and, and dharma, gender and Buddhism. And I think my initial um, rub was traditional Buddhist practices and thinking is the ethical rub of a social problem. It's unfair. Uh, It's 
unjust. And even though Buddhists don't usually use the words fairness or justice, the way you could say that is gender norms, gender stereotypes definitely cause suffering. Um, in fact, the reason I call it the prison of gender roles is that I would say a lot of the human-caused suffering, rather than the suffering that comes with having a body, like birth, old age, sickness, and death, to name a few. Those are the four basic types of suffering. Then when the Buddha talked about what is suffering, he went on to say, uh, getting what we don't want, um, not getting what we do want, all sorts of emotional distress. Those are the next three kinds of suffering. Those are human-caused sufferings. And I think a lot of them are simply due to trying to fit into externally given norms of which the most pervasive, I think, is, is gender norms. The most pervasive, the most sticky, the most stubborn set of norms we're given, I think, is gender norms. So I've always, I've argued for a long time that that kind of deliberate causing of suffering is, is something Buddhists shouldn't be doing. It shouldn't be part of Buddhist, in other words, trying to get people to behave in terms of conventional gender norms shouldn't be part of Buddhist ethics, but it has been, and it still is. Um, and you know, I could, I could tell you stories all day about how much I've been reprimanded by other Buddhists for bringing up this topic. Um, because it causes um, discomfort. People don't like, still don't like to talk about gender. Um, now, what I've always tried to do in the work I've done is to say that a better way of dealing with gender and a critique of traditional Buddhist gender norms has to come from within Buddhism. It's not a secular critique Marxist or feminist or whatever, being aimed at Buddhism from an outside standpoint. A lot of people get very confused about that, but I've always said, no, no, it's not an outside standpoint that I'm aiming critiques at Buddhism. As a Buddhist, standing within Buddhism, my values, obviously I'm a Western Buddhist, so I have lots of sources of values, but fundamentally my values um, I mean, I've been a Buddhist for a long time, and I've put a lot of effort and energy into, into, into practice. Um, my values come from Buddhism. And as a Buddhist, not as a secular feminist, I think the ethics issue around traditional gender norms is very, very great. That Buddhists really have no business setting up a society or perpetuating a society in which it is easier and more prestigious to be, when it, when it is an advantage to have a male body. I mean, there's a reason why people observed the society around them and said it's, un, it's not bad karma, it's unfortunate karma to be reborn as a female because the female role involves so much suffering. Um, and that's, that's a, a observation that runs throughout Buddhism. It's often very hard to get Western Buddhists to see why that was made, but it's very, very widespread. Um, however, the ethics question, the social question, the social problem question, 
has now become like the ground of the work that I'm doing on Buddhism and gender. It's kind of the working basis. But uh, Tibetan Buddhists talk a lot about the working basis as a ground and then how you work with that, which is path, and then what eventually results, which is um, fruition. And ultimately for Buddhists, the fruition would be enlightenment, whether we want to talk about it in, in whatever terms of whatever sect. It's fundamentally enlightenment. Now, in Buddhist terms, what is the fundamental barrier to enlightenment? It's not suffering. Attachment. Attachment to (laughs) everything. Attachment to what's the eighth kind of in his first sermon the Buddha defined eight kinds of suffering we've got seven of them birth, old age, sickness, death which you know go with the territory of having a body having been born in the first place those are not much we can do about them getting what we don't want not getting what we do want all sorts of difficult emotions in short any clinging to no, clinging and desire are different trends. Sense of self. Any, actually where it says any attachment to any condition component thing, the most fundamental of which is our sense of ego, our sense of self. Um, what's the fundamental barrier to enlightenment according to Buddhism? Ego clinging. Clinging to the notion that I am real, which means that I am independent, uncaused. There's some permanent, there's some permanent thing about me, which is, you know, a pretty deep psychological presupposition for most of us. We've had that habit for a long time. And it takes a lot of analysis to even become intellectually clear that that makes no sense. But, you know, it does. It makes no sense to think that we are independent, uncaused, permanent things or entities when, in fact, if we look around, it's obvious that we are the product of all sorts of causes and conditions, that we are interdependent, um, ever-changing constellations of cause and effect that come together momentarily and fall apart almost as fast. But we have projected onto that an enduring sense of, this is me, haven't we? We've projected onto that a sense that there is an enduring me. And, you know, I'm going to take care of that enduring me. Is that... Was that accurate? Does that fit your understanding of how Buddhists talk? Does it um, ring true to you at some level? How do we create and confirm ego? How do we create and confirm this self? I mean, we usually call it ego in Buddhist shorthand. How do we 
in one word, if we could put it in one word, what is it that creates and confirms ego or our sense of being separate, of being an individual with a real uh, essence? Fear? Fear? Oh, that's a good word. That wasn't the one I was thinking of, but that's a good word. Clinging. How about duality, which is a philosophical way of talking about separateness? That if you if you do some of the more minute analyses, and we look, you know, we really look. What is it that makes me convinced I'm here? That that's there. That's just really basic Abhidharma. Um, you know, and, and once that, once that, once we have allegiance to duality rather than to uh, a sense of matrix and interdependent field, once our fundamental allegiance is to duality, I can be sure I'm here because, you know, I hit something there. Then the whole, you know, the whole dance is pretty well set. Now, in terms of gender being a dharma problem, what's one of the easiest ways to confirm that I'm here and I'm different from what's there? That's one of the easiest ways to keep that sense of that belief in duality going. Separating yeah. Separating selves into male and female and being, you know, so just like that with the with the labeling. One of the exercises that I think is interesting to do is to try to remember situations you were in in which you could not put a gender label on a person with whom you are interacting. Can you think of any? What are you thinking of? Uh, the situation was somebody had a retreat. Not sure whether it was a male or female. And the name was also could not be clarified. Yeah. And uh, it was a very warm relationship in this retreat setting with this person. And I was very confused. And fortunately, I was in a retreat setting, so I could. Notice how much this was messing with my head, but yeah. In fact, I'm still not sure. <laughs> <laughs> what I think about, I think I decided once, and now I don't know anymore. So it's very yeah, shaky. It, it teaches us a lot. If we, I think it's very good practice to try to think of or somehow find situations in which we need to interact with people without that gender label that we just so automatically put on people. One of the situations I've been in is um, making arrangements by email for international conferences. You can't tell by the names. And I mean, there was one instance, was a conference in Finland, and I emailed with this person for about a year and a half, you know, not knowing whether I was talking to, it was a conference that had to do with gender, so one would have thought it's probably a woman, but I knew better than to make that assumption. 
I wasn't sure who was going to meet me at the airport. Um, turned out to be a man. But I think that what those situations teach us, if we can find them, and they're hard to find because, you know, um, we, we uh, have such clear gender markers, those of us who are lay people, most of us have such clear gender markers, and, you know, we, we don't give them up. But it teaches us that there are ways to interact with people without knowing whether it's a man or a woman, that in fact we don't need that information. We think we need the information, but we don't need it. And what we usually do with that information is put ourselves in this little square and the other person in that little square. And of course that reinforces duality, which um, it reinforces our sense of, of um, what in Buddhist shorthand is called ego. So we hang on to a dichotomy that seems very real to us, which is what we're always told in Buddhist analysis and Buddhist meditation is our big mistake anyway. It's hanging on to um, hanging on to a, a, a sense of separation of me here, that there, that doesn't ultimately exist. So we do all these complicated analyses in Buddhism. We go through the skandhas, well, the self is not in form, feeling, perception, um, conceptualization, or consciousness. The, uh, the self is, we go through the ayatanas, we go through the datus. Uh, we get all these parts. We say, can't find the self in any of these parts. If we're in the Tibetan tradition, we do Mahamudra analysis and we spend times of very intense meditation asking uh, where is the self what is real and you know you come up just there's no you can't come up with anything and yet we get off the meditation cushion and act as if we have come up with something <laughs> do that all the time in a certain sense it's just called living in the relative world but we begin to take that relative world very seriously again over and over. Now, in terms of, of Buddhism, gender, ego, egolessness, I've come up with a slogan that I think describes how we tend to operate. We agree there is no ego, there is no permanent abiding self, but gender is real. You know, I just think about how we operate. Isn't that how we operate? We're, we're convinced because we've done so much of the now analytical work, so much meditation. There is no permanent, enduring, abiding, separate self. There is no ego. The gender is real. That we keep on ascribing reality to gender long after we've, at some level, given up on being a separate self. And there's very little in Buddhism that helps us to get past that point. You know, most traditional Buddhist practices, texts, would, um, they still teach us to separate men and women. Um, you know, those are the rules for monks, these are the rules for nuns, they need to lead separate lives, 
The monks go into the meditation hall first and the nuns follow. Heaven forbid that they should go in in order of age seniority rather than gender seniority. The world would fall apart if we did it that way. I mean, there's so much in the Buddhist world that encourages us to somehow hang on to the reality of gender long after we've given up believing in the reality of ego, even though we may still slip on that one, but we know at some basic, fundamental, at least intellectual level, that it doesn't cut. So, um, I'm going, I'm suggesting that if we really want to do analytical work to deconstruct ego, to deconstruct our, our sense of self, of being somebody, why don't we spend a lot of time investigating gender, analyzing gender? I think that would bear really fast results. Um, I'm thinking of the last, a couple of weekends ago, I taught a whole weekend program on Buddhism and gender in Baltimore. And by the end of it, this very, very sweet young man was saying, but if I didn't have my mustache and my genitals, I wouldn't know who I am. <laughs> to which I wanted to reply, isn't that the point of Buddhist practice? To, to shake our sense of who we, of I know who I am? Isn't that the point of Buddhist practice? That if we leave Buddhist practice more convinced of our, our little identities than of the interdependence of our physical form and psychology and um, the vast spaciousness of egolessness, if we, if we don't get there, what's the point of our Buddhist practice? So, I'm running out of time already. Um, so that's, you know, let's, let's um, not get caught by this acting as if gender is real even though we know that there is no ego. Let's not get caught there. Let's, um, I think there's a lot to be, it's a good slogan to work with, I think, a lot of the time. Um, I wanted to, uh, I could cite verses and passages from classical Buddhist texts. There are two in particular that uh, I like to talk about, but one of them is from a Theravada text, so that's the one I want to quote in this context. Uh, the text is the Terigata, Songs of the Female Elders, which is uh, one of my favorite Buddhist texts, because partly because it is um, because it is written by, or at least ascribed to, attribute, excuse me, attributed to the early nuns, um, but also because it's so little known. Um, and this is a, uh, the, in, much as in the Zen tradition, in the early Buddhist tradition, people wrote short poems to express their breakthrough, their realization, when that aha moment happened. And they were collected, there's a collection by the monks and another smaller collection by the nuns. And in this particular poem, it's phrased as a dialogue between Mara, uh, whom we know is the Buddhist kind of um, always trying to trick people into false beliefs guy, and he usually is a guy, um, and this nun. And Mara says, um, 
something that is very commonly said in many Buddhist texts, that place the sages gain is hard to reach, i.e. enlightenment. That place the sages gain is hard to reach. A mere woman can't get there. And the nun Soma replies, What harm is it to be a woman when the mind is concentrated and the insight is clear? If I ask myself, am I a man or a woman in this, then I would be speaking Mara's language. It's very nicely done. If I even bother to think about am I a man or am I a woman, then I'm caught in, in Mara's language. Uh, and then there's a verse that's added on. Everywhere the love of pleasure is destroyed, the great dark is torn apart, and death, you too, are destroyed. That's from a translation of the Terigata called The First Buddhist Women, if you want to look it up. It's an older book. But there are many editions of the, so fairly many editions of the Terigata. I can give those later. <coughs> so... I think that it is important to return to the question of having done this kind of really sharp deconstruction of gender that I think we need to do as Buddhists because, you know, we deconstruct everything. That's part of the practice. Um, after having done that, I think it is useful to go back to the question of gender norms being necessary, which most societies would have argued, or helpful. What do they do? I think that many people would answer what you said earlier, that it keeps order. It keeps things in order. And that's usually the justification for any set of rules. Uh, you know, you go to the left, you go to the right. Um, you get this, you get that. There's always having rules makes things more orderly. People get too confused and in a certain sense too competitive and aggressive if there are no rules because everybody wants to go to the head of the line. So there is a certain sense about an aggression and a competitiveness that comes up um, in the fewer norms there are. Um, yes, quickly. Well, I just think that it yeah, there are those drawbacks, but I also think that there's opportunity for negotiation and exploration mm -hmm. and that, that um, genuine dialogue that it was current so much more investigation. Yeah, yeah obviously, I'm, I'm, I'm agreeing with that. I'm trying to, to help us. To tr I think it's important rather than just saying, well, we've done the analysis. Um, this is all bunk. We need. It's very helpful then to understand where the people are coming from who do think this is important so that we can work more skillfully um, with, with the situation. Because if we just have a critique and don't know how to work with the situation, usually it isn't very helpful. So just having a good critique, that's part of the, part of the job. A lot of people would say uh, keeping order, helping people avoid confusion in the relative world, um, some people would say having strict gender norms 
helps avoid sexual misconduct. And that's what, was it you? Someone was, it was moving in that direction, that because of the sex drive, part of the function of gender norms, which often separate men and women, put them in almost separate cultures, is to avoid sexual misconduct. Um, there's a lot of situations where it's felt that's the only way to avoid sexual misconduct. It's one of the reasons why monks and nuns, you know, lived reasonably separate lives. Uh, some people would argue genetic programming. You know, we do a lot of animal behavior studies and we talk about the role of testosterone and, you know, some people would say genetic programming, um, in, to which I would reply that if that is the case, to some extent, I think a lot of Buddhist practice is about overcoming that kind of instinctual um, of that kind of instinctual driven quality because there's no question because we are born with human bodies we have we have the karma of having a human body and there are things that go with that territory but Buddhist practice would make no sense whatsoever if we just threw up our hands and said oh well can't help it it's all you know genetic programming I got to do what my genes tell me to um, that would that would there'd be no point to Buddhist practice if we just gave in that easily to um, what we're born with. Now, the question that I think is is important is what what would be the difference between flexible suggestions regarding decorum which is my new translation of gender roles that's very much Flexible guidelines promoting decorum. Flexible guidelines promoting decorum. Can you define what you mean by decorum? Um, that's hard, actually. I mean, um, behavior that promotes harmony and um, and well, harmony. So, actual behaviors. Yeah, I think there are behaviors that promote. I mean, what, is that what you mean by decorum? Yeah. Well, yeah, mainly, mainly, you know, norms or flexible guidelines for interacting promote decorum. I think that uh, modesty with clothing is an important such decorum. Now, I'm not sure that men and women have to wear different clothing, but clothing that promotes modesty, I think, is an important aspect of decorum. Um, Avoiding a lot of highly suggestive flirtation, I think that's important for decorum. So a lot of it does have to do with uh, with sexual interactions. A lot of it also has to do with speech, you know, of just polite, gentle speech, which isn't as sex-marked. But the point I'm trying to get at is um, what would be the difference between those flexible guidelines and the situation that most of us were socialized into or I would say brainwashed into because um, we weren't given flexible guidelines we were given rigid gender roles what's the one word difference between such flexible guidelines and the gender roles that at least that I was brought up in one word attachment 
its attachment to the gender norms make these behaviors absolutely necessary. It is more important that you conform than that you, um, it's most, most, I'll change the sentence, it's most important that you conform to these given norms. Um, so attachment, attachment is, you know, attachment to a specific set of gender norms and ultimately attachment to the notions of male and female whatsoever. Um, the story I wanted to tell is from a Mahayana text, so I'll tell that one very quickly too. Um, this, in many, many of the Mahayana texts, Shariputra, who was the wisest or one of the wisest among the Buddha's early disciples, is made into the guy who never understands anything. So Shariputra in this Mahayana, very famous text, is, is talking to a woman who has been studying Buddhism, studying Dharma for 12 years. And he, gets into a debate with her. And he says, you know, you're pretty good. You really understand this stuff. Why don't you become a man? <laughs> and she replies, because there are other scriptures in Buddhist texts in which that challenge is put out, and there is a magical sex change right there on the spot. <laughs> but in this text, the, the goddess, the woman says, well, I've been studying here for 12 years. I've been looking for the essence of the female sex, and I haven't been able to find it. Which is, you know, if there's something essential, if there's a woman's nature, then how come I don't know what it is? Since the last time I checked, biologically I'm female, there should be some, you know, female nature I can identify. Huh? Beats me. I can't identify it. Um, so... She said, how can I change since there's no, there's no essence here? And then she, instead of changing herself, she changed him into a woman and herself <laughs> into a man. And, and says to him, well, why don't, you know, why don't you change? And he said, well, I don't understand, you know, I, I don't understand, you know, what, how I became a woman. I don't understand anything. Um, and then she changed them back into their former sexes. And then she, then she said to him, and now where is the female essence? And Shariputra, who is now back in a male body, says, the female essence, the essence of being female neither exists nor does not exist, which is a much better Buddhist answer than to tell a smart woman she's too, too, too masculine or she is filling a male gender role. I would like to, um, really are running out of time, I would like to end with a few examples of what I consider to be attachment to gender norms. Um, and it, remember I said it's attachment to gender norms that's the problem, not an open-ended, flexible set of suggestions that promote decorum. <clears throat> I think that there's a very clear example still of attachment to gender norms in, in our society. And that is men's horror at the claim that they really do need to be more feminine, quote, feminine in the traditional sense. That they need to spend examples of that. Uh, one of my very favorite examples is men's horror of wearing skirts. Women wear pants all the time, right? Why are men so afraid of skirts? They're actually much more comfortable for sitting practice. <laughs> They're also much cooler. 
um, you know, and in many, many cultures around the world, men have worn skirts. So what is it with men in Western societies? I really do mean what I said earlier, that I think in the past 50 years, women have become somewhat free of the prison of gender roles. Men have not. Women have taken on doing a lot of things that, that were defined as the male gender role. Men have not taken on the female gender role anywhere nearly to the same extent. I think you can see that by the ways in which maternity leave is utilized and paternity leave is utilized. Paternity leave is much rarer. It's much less used. And frankly, many men think it's just too wimpy. It's too feminine. It also tends to be much shorter. It tends to be maybe half the time you've done it. So um, I think that's one example of how we still have a lot of attachment, attachment to traditional gender norms. I think another one is the notion that somehow, I've heard this in many a Mother's Day sermon, so we will tie it in with Mother's Day, that somehow the world would be better if women ruled the world because women are nicer, they're more compassionate than men. I think that is... Um, that's attachment to a traditional gender norm. So it doesn't matter whether we're talking about things that are, have been asserted, about, stereotypes that have been asserted about men, asserted about women. Um, attachment to gender subverts enlightenment, both as a social issue and more at a deeper level, at a, as a fundamental dharma issue. It's very fundamental. Dharma issue. I do not see how we can be close to enlightenment if we still put any stock into gender as a category. So we had some discussion during the talk. Um, I don't want to take too much more time tonight, but if there are any concluding reflections or comments, we could spend a few minutes. Yes. Pardon? Why do you think we are male and female? <laughs> uh, exchange of genetic, and, I mean, it seems to be an evolutionary, you know, an evolutionary process. So once upon a time, there was no male or female? Uh, we don't know that because there is no, there is no once upon a time absolute <laughs> beginning in terms of Buddhist history. Though so there are a few Buddhist there there are a few Buddhist stories now that I think about it. That yes, once upon a time and as people as as beings became cruder and more dualistic, one of the results of becoming cruder and more dualistic is sexual differentiation. So in terms of mythology, that's one way the question could be answered. I was trying to answer it more in terms of, you know, evolution and biology and reproduction. Um, seems to go back pretty far in the history of this eon. Um, beyond that, I don't know. Well, in terms of, yeah, in terms of evolution, I can't go very far because I don't know it. In terms of Buddhist mythology, mythology uh, tales of origins, which are never taken to be at the ultimate level in Buddhism. In Buddhism, there is no first time because time is 
without beginning and without end. Um, just think about it. If you try to ask what was the first thing, your mind just goes to and what was before that. It's an unanswerable question, which is why Buddhists have said it's not one of the things that's worth thinking about a lot because there is no answer. Better to think about things we can solve. Um, but when they do tell little stories, the beings aren't especially described, but the implication is that they're hominoids without, um, without sexuality. Um, and actually, there's quite a few stories around the world that do link the origin of sexuality with some basic mistake, usually of becoming cruder and more dualistic, that there's more primary level of insight where those distinctions just aren't made. And then there's some kind of, you know, oh, I want to get attached to this. How do I really know this is here? That's there. Well, it seems like it, the way I remember the story, like they suddenly saw, like that they were male and female, and then the bad thing happens. Well, as one as one, one person used to say about the Garden of Eden story, the problem really never was the apple on the tree; it was the pear on the ground. <laughs> <laughs> so um, these are things that you know. This this could go on for a long time to talk about gender different, sexual differentiation, and how sex fits into Buddhist ethics and into enlightenment, but I think, you know, there is a reason why monasticism has been an important part of Buddhism. Mm -hmm. um, off the topic that you're talking about, but I was curious what your thoughts on one of the stories that has caused me pain about uh, limited learning about historical Buddha is that he felt that if admitting women into monasticism would really kind of short the dispensation of all of the door would be open for deliberation. Mm -hmm. So I was curious, given your um, scholarly background, do you think that's accurate? I mean, do you really think that that's true, that he said that? Or well, I, I'm going to answer what I think is the most basic answer. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because it's not about what somebody did then. It's about what we do now, which is, I think, really at the heart of, of Buddhism. Um, in other words, historical precedents aren't determinative. Uh, there's a lot of scholarly controversy about whether the Buddha actually, the historical Buddha actually said that or not. Um, but in any case, if he did say it, it wasn't a very accurate statement because he said that his religion would have lasted a thousand years. Now it was only going to last 500. And we're 2,600 years after the enlightenment of the Buddha now. So since it, she obviously didn't know what he was talking about if he did say it. So let's, I just don't, you know, there's a lot of very hurtful statements in Buddhist texts, and they tend to get lifted up somehow, um, which I think is 
it's part of this whole gender problem I'm trying to say we need to really just cut through it um, the, the hurtful texts are get pointed to a lot and you know they're in the tradition but big deal They're being used today to maintain the duality. That's right. But if you have done the analysis and recognize that that gender is part of the collective dream, and we need to stop believing in gender, then you can't use those stories to justify old practices. So doing the analysis makes belief or disbelief in the story kind of a moot point. because I think that, that good analysis there's a statement in Buddhism that understanding liberating one liberates all so that if you've really worked through one problem the same methodology applies to the other issues for obvious historical reasons both my age and the fact that I have white privilege uh, I focused on age is a very important part of why I focused on gender because believe me those gender norms in the 50s were pretty pretty damn rigid especially if you grew up in northern Wisconsin in a fundamentalist household um, but I think that liberating one liberates all that that it's a mistake to to discount someone's work because they focus on one problem that doesn't mean that they're saying other issues are less important. They're saying this is the one I can handle. Um, and the same methodology um, applies to, and that it is a very fundamental statement, liberating one liberates all. If you really work through What is the reality of X Dharma? You don't have to go back and do the same analysis about the reality of Y Dharma because you're going to get the same answer using the same steps, pretty much. There might be some different applications in terms of skillful means for specific situations, but the cutting part would be the same. The applications would then be specific to specific situations. Yeah, um, I, I'm so on board with everything you're saying. <laughs> but I, there's something I've, I just want to, um, you know, there was some laughter and stuff when you were talking about um, uh, sexuality, you know, um, the problems of se sexual misconduct. And, and I think there's something about, um, you know, with our greed, anger, and delusion uh, as human beings about really respecting the power of sexuality and um, you know I wonder if some of the norms you know that we institute 
do serve as a form of protection. I mean, I, I think there's a mm-hmm. natural gravitation to, you know, a way to decide to protect, protect one another in that way. So. Yeah, well, that's the, that's the part of the, you know, part of the big, a big question, because the justification for sexual segregation has always been that it, it, um, it makes sexual misconduct less prevalent. And if you let men and women interact, you know, the next thing you know, they'll be having sex. Um, and that justification has been used in a lot of religious contexts. But I went through this years ago in another religious context where we talked about the fact that, well, if you separate men and women and only let them come together to mate, of course, when men see women, they're going to think about sex because that's that's the context. So, in the same way that much most of the time, at least, family members don't have sex with one another, so people who become friends with one another, there's something that that um, that changes when you don't just regard every person of the opposite sex as primarily a potential sexual partner. So, um, you know, on the one hand, those those norms for separation of the sexes do promote decorum and protect us from the power of the the greed and especially the greed that surrounds sexuality. But it also, usually, there is no separate but equal system that's ever worked. (laughs) So it's also meant that there's a superior-inferior there and for my money, I'd rather um, not that you know negotiating negotiating sexuality as a young person in this society is pretty awful because there's so much sexual stimulus everywhere. But that's a problem. That it doesn't need to be. There doesn't need to be that much sexual stimulus in the environment. But still, um, because separate but equal systems never work. I take my chances with more with more interaction between women and men or putting women and men in the same environment. What I would cut out is all the sexual stimulation, all of the you know adver- the, the sexualizing of children and the advertising of everything. It's back to you know what it was in the pre-feminist days. Everything is sold with sex again. And not to belabor it, but again, the rigid sex roles, not separation, the sex roles of the 50s did not result in a lack of sexual misbehavior. (laughs) (laughs) It was not a wonderful period of... No, no, I I don't know why people idealized the 50s. I don't know why. I mean, it was... But everybody, you know, and people like, you know, people who are somewhat nonconformists never like the culture they grew up in because the culture tried to make them conform. You were going to make um, this. And the first is when I was talking about human sexuality, having the sexuality thing being a reason for the emphasis on the polarity. It wasn't uh, meaning. As a, as a means for preventing this conduct, but as um, as a vehicle towards uh, increased pleasure 
maybe I could say, or a sense of opposite. And the more extreme the opposite, the more mm. the you know something to do with that. Ah, uh, but I think I mean I think that's um, that's pretty unattractive to me actually. I know. I'm not talking about you. Though. I'm talking about why it has happened. Why it's done. Mm. To me, it has more. It doesn't really matter. It could be both. It doesn't have to be an either or. That either it's to prevent sexual misconduct or it's to promote um, attraction of opposites. Could be both. I mean, who can understand how these things started or why? It just it's unfathomable. Yes. Um, when I was in college, um, I, I went to a movie school in Massachusetts called Hampshire. And we had, um, uh, you know, cross-gender people, from male to female, and it was no big deal. And, um, and I, I didn't have a problem with sharing that space. I was very open about it. My parents were freaking out. Yeah. <laughs> were freaking out. Um, and it was complicated by the fact that to go through the halls, that one of the exit spaces was through the bathroom. So the bathrooms were also public. Pathways <laughs> to shut through the building. We didn't think anything about it, you know. It was just what we did. It was college, you know. Um, also, during my college experience, shortly after I moved out of the dorms, that was when um, I uh, I lost my hair. My hair fell out during college, and it was just a, a, a hugely significant event in my life, and um, and it's emotional. So, pardon me. Um, the um, it's it's important to me that you that you're picking up this mantle and, and working towards this because it's a an issue that's uh, important to me and that I've my whole concept of sexuality has changed, has been um, adjusted because of this. And it's as simple as um, you know, I went around for a year wearing a scarf and it wasn't something that I I wanted to do, didn't feel honest to me. So when I opted to take it off, then I got to deal with everyone's reactions, which I still do mm-hmm. um, on a you know on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. Often, uh, you know, I would say every every couple of weeks at least. And the and the things that are the think of how much you're helping those people. Well, <laughs> and in fact, that, that is actually an attitude that I that I've taken towards it. I, I think of myself as something of a teacher in a way. Yes. Um, which sometimes I feel very arrogant about, but um, <laughs> you've <laughs> suffered enough. <laughs> well, it, I mean, it, it is. It's a. It's a. It's a, it, it's a challenge. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, there, there are things like uh, going into going into restrooms now, and and uh, like in airport restrooms, and women screaming because they think there's a man coming into the restroom. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. and uh, children in particular in grocery stores. Um, mm-hmm. Coming up, and you know, they'll look at me for a while, and I'll smile and be very welcoming. And then, you know, they'll come up and ask, Are you a man or a woman? And, you know, and I, I at this point, I'm very good at being direct. And, you know, I say, I'm a woman, what are you? And, and then they, you know, they tend to, you know, have a, you know, they say what they are, and they smile. And then usually their parents, you know, it's a good gauge of parenting. The parents either freak out, scoop up their kids, and run off, <laughs> or, uh, you know, then they engage with the 
small conversation about gender with their children, but I mean, all ages of children have. If they're very young, then they tend to think I'm a child, which is very interesting. Mm-hmm. Something about baldness, I think, translates over to being a child, yeah. Okay, so. Okay, I didn't want to do a huge crystal confessional, but there you go. Um, I, I'm, I'm just, I'm really pleased to, to have you take up this mess because it's hugely important to me. And um, and it's meaningful to be in a room full of people talking about this and um, being open to just the ideas that you're talking about. Thank you. Thank you. I'm a little sensitive to your time, Rita. Rita has to drive back to Eau Claire. It's a great conversation, but I don't want to uh, take care of you. Okay. I think this is a good time to end, actually. I want to thank you for your comments. Um, I've gotten so used to... I I spend a lot of time with, with Buddhist nuns, less with Buddhist monks. I've gotten so used to women without hair that it just seems completely normal to me. It's uh, no, it's it's completely it's it's very much normal to me because I interact. Or my teacher has no hair. And huge ears. <laughs> and you know, I mean, in Tibet, the the uniforms are unisex too, which I think is actually not such a bad idea. Thank you so much, Rita. It was a great uh, talk and conversation, and hopefully it will just keep going, and we'll have you back to kind of infuse it. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.